Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. My uh, sweet baby Jude, who is, well, who's got Jude right now? Oh, Darius got him in the back, yep. So he, he started squawking recently and he really enjoys yammering to himself, especially when he's excited and he's playing. This is particularly true when Devin, who's just up here, is trying to make an important point or share this wonderful idea at meetings that, that happens in our house every week. And as soon as Devin starts talking, Jude takes that cue to offer his own fascinating viewpoint on the situation. Unfortunately, he's unintelligible. Um, and Devin is learning patience. And we're just enjoying the hilarity that Jude likes to talk when Devin decides to start talking. So he's a little, little too quiet today, a little too tired. He's really enjoying being with Derek, so he, d- he didn't join in this morning, but... Now, Roland, my, my eldest, is seven, and he will happily talk your ear off about Pokemon or his desert biome diorama, which he turned in this week, or his first soccer game yesterday. He will, he'd be happy to talk to you about those things. Now, Aiden, on the other hand, would rather play soccer than talk to you about it, but he will happily interrupt any conversation with multiple repetitions of, can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Regardless of your positive response, he will probably say it three or four times before he realizes, oh, they're, they're ready to listen. Now, Catherine, who will be four in exactly two weeks, Catherine is a little different. Catherine will happily sing at the top of her lungs or dance around the room or loudly express her love for her baby brother, punctuated by multiple squeezes of his cheeks, um, and do the exact opposite of what you are asking her to do, cackling the whole time. That's the Catherine's thing. She's going to be trouble when she gets older. Um, And she will happily attempt to talk to you as well. The trouble is she's not fully intelligible to people who aren't around her frequently. And my dad, who's sitting right there, has been in town recently, and he's here. And when Catherine tries to talk to him, Megan and I often have to translate or clarify what she's saying. For instance, here's an example of Catherine reading a book a few nights ago. Or really, she's sharing what she memorized from one of her favorite books we've been reading. So see if you can follow what she's saying. Is that it? A fat fish, a skinny fish, two red fish, they look like So, did he, did he follow that? Oh, uh, she's, yeah, the last thing she, so she's wearing, I don't know what, she's wearing Megan's glasses the whole time. And Catherine has her own glasses, and she seemed to think that was great. So that is a book, in this instance, is about a lot of dogs that are going fishing. So it's different types of dogs. Yeah, yeah, see, you didn't, you didn't quite follow. Catching different types of fish. Um, including a whale at the end, they catch a whale. So that's what she said very excitedly, right? Um, so whether it's reading a book or sharing her day or asking questions, many people, when they talk to Catherine, respond with what? Or could you ask me again in a different way? It's a very nice adult version of what? Um, so let's Megan and I step in and clarify what she's saying and smooth the communication path 
um, it can be hard. We need to do a little Catherine translation for people. Now, this need for translation and interpretation is not only with children. This challenge exists throughout our lives. Many things need to be translated. Our annual trip to Mexico, like, like Devin mentioned, over Veterans Day is coming soon, and we'll visit our friends and missionaries, Elohim and Carla Salazar. Elohim speaks excellent English. Carla um, does not speak ec- excellent English. In fact, we were talking to her about it once, and she told Elohim, I know enough Spanish to understand what she said. She said, English is such an ugly language. Why would I try to speak it? <laughs> So, <laughs> their, kids, their kids speak some English. If they, if they watch any TV, they have to watch English TV so they can learn how, how to do it. But I've been, I've been working on Duolingo. My streak is now over 900 days. I know you're, you care about that. Um, to be able to talk to Carla a little bit when we're in Mexico and maybe understand the students in the ministry or the people who go to their church. And maybe I'll even be able to do a little translation for our team as well. Um, but I probably should go to this, whatever dinner Devin's talking about, because I really... I'm good at book learning, but not good at actually speaking. And that takes a level of being willing to make a fool out of yourself that is a little hard for me. So I'm working to grow there. Now, language is an obvious area that this sort of translation happens, right? Um, But it also happens when perhaps you talk to a medical professional and they use jargon or medical terms that you don't understand. Or when you talk to someone about their field of study, there are often multiple terms that they use that are indecipherable. Um, And it's just much easier just to nod along when they talk. In fact... Um, on Wednesday at our small group, uh, Daniel was clarifying, attempting to clarify just a little bit of what he does as a materials engineer at a startup company in Tucson, and I just nodded. I was like, sure. Uh, I still have really no idea what he said. Um, My dad was talking to Erica, whose parents are in their, their upper 70s, and we experience this a lot, that it has to be translation across generations, right? I have one living grandparent, and especially in areas of technology, I have to communicate very carefully to make sure that we're on the same page. Every day, we are all subtly navigating different cultures, experiences, languages, areas of expertise, technological, pop culture, and current event literacy, and core worldviews. And if we don't do some work to understand people who are different than us, we will struggle to develop the relational depth that so enriches our lives. Not only that, but we will be challenged in communicating well. One of my favorite quotes is from William Butler Yeats. He says, think like a wise man, but communicate in the language of the people. So did any of you have like that kid in high school um, that was really smart but wanted other people to know that they were smart? Um, So they would use large vocabulary words um, as often as possible to broadcast their intelligence or at least like present the veneer of intelligence. Um, Were you that kid? It's okay. Um, I admit that they slash you drove me crazy. Um, They would open their mouths and I would think, I know what the word means that you're using, but not everyone does. And you sound pretentious and ridiculous. And my thoughts as a high schooler were perhaps a bit judgmental, and I just quoted Yates, and that's probably pretentious. Um, But I'm convinced that Yates is right. Being able to communicate well with people across all walks of life is an important skill that values others and cares about them more than projecting an image of intelligence, uh, which is about us. In this area, wisdom is important, and it is especially important when it comes to sharing the message of Jesus with others. And this is what we're exploring in the series that we're doing. In many ways, the world has experienced a shift in the West from a modern way of thinking. Modern, I'll explain what that means, not as in right now, but modern in the past. 
um, to a postmodern one, which really just means what happened next, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of approaches to ministry, especially if you've ever gone to any kind of evangelism training sort of thing, or been, been equipped on how to share your faith, you were probably trained to start with questions that people aren't even asking. Like, if you died today, why would God let you into heaven? Or have you ever committed a sin? Or do you understand that your sin has separated you entirely from a holy God, and only the sacrifice of Jesus can bridge that gap? The trouble is, um, while these approaches are well-intentioned, people aren't asking these questions. They don't often have the same foundational worldview, so you may find yourself trying to convince them that God is real first, that they are eternal spiritual beings, or perhaps you'll fight the truth battle, that truth is even knowable in any way. Or perhaps you try the daunting task of convincing them they are sinners in need of a savior, and their sin puts them in in danger of the fires of hell. But good news, all these things you didn't know and you didn't believe a minute ago, I have an answer for it. Jesus fixes all these things, right? But they're asking these questions. They don't hold the same foundational beliefs. And so what ends up happening is you start in the wrong place. And I'm not saying you won't ever get there. Um, You might get there. But these truth claims that people try to make require a lot of translation. People don't understand what you're saying. And you can end up having a totally different conversation than you thought you were going to have. Or no conversation at all, because we don't start where they are at. If we aren't careful, we commit to a method or to a way of sharing, or I was told that this is how you do it, and we often then present a simplistic gospel um, that is more about us and us fulfilling our duty, doing what we think we're supposed to do, than about the person we're actually trying to love and care for and engage and offer an invitation in the way of Jesus. But if we take the time to understand culture and the culture that people are swimming in and follow the examples that we find in the New Testament, we can not only understand the lives of people around us, we can find a path for the young and the lonely and help walk with them towards Jesus. And that's what we're exploring in this series. So we're going to start with a little crash course on the basics of the modern postmodern shift before we dive in what we can learn from two approaches of public evangelism that happened in the New Testament, specifically both in the book of Acts. So, um, I'm gonna first give you, this is the five second overview of the pre-modern, modern, post-modern view of the world. Um, and I'm gonna be real clear, this is gonna be pretty reductionistic, which is a very modern way to do things. Now this is mostly a meme, um, but, there's, but there's some truth for it, right? So the pre-modern West, we're, trolley, we're focusing on the Western world, um, is really just the world before the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, Enlightenment, Scientific Revolution. So we're talking about the world before those kind of transformative moments happened. Um, So we're talking pre-1500, really. Um, It was medieval, and it was marked by strong central authority, specifically authority found in the Catholic Church and in the divine right of kings. So their whole society was ordered around that. Government was feudal, and God had ordained such an order. Then along comes Martin Luther, who has these theses, which led to the Protestant Reformation and Copernicus, and his view that the universe, um, view of the universe, the earth was actually rotating around the sun and not the other way around, and the world rapidly changed 500 years ago. But I want you to understand the reason this matters, well, there are lots of reasons this matters, but one of them is that if you went back and met a medieval Christian, and they found out 
that you did not believe that the Pope was the central Christian authority, that you didn't hold to the idea of the divine right of kings, um, and that you believed in Copernicus's heliocentric heresy um, instead of concentric spheres of perfection, which was the view of the universe at the time, um, they would have been convinced that you were not only not a Christian, but that you were probably a heretic um, in, in danger of very different fires at that time. Um, this view of the world had become totally entwined with the faith, um, and it was very hard to separate. Um, but some things happened in the world that, that shattered that reality and transitioned us into the modern world. So the pre-modern world transitioned to the modern world due to some incredible changes. And I think you may start seeing some parallels. So the printing press, number one, revolutionized communication and human learning. Secondly, advancement in human understanding and science with Copernicus, right? Asserting that Earth isn't the center of the universe and Galileo, Newton, Bacon, and others, they gave birth to modern science. Radically changes the way you view the world. Ships capable of traveling across oceans kicked off colonization. Capitalism replaced feudalism as monarchy after monarchy fell. Modern guns led to new warfare and the rise of nation states. And the Protestant Reformation upended and challenged the authority of the Catholic Church, radically changing religious life throughout the West. Now, this led to the era of modernism. So again, these are ways of looking at history, so we mean modern, not as right now, but this is a, the modern phase of history, which saw these huge changes shape the culture. So colonization led to conquest and control, which we're still trying to untangle in our world, right? The scientific revolution resulted in an age seeking understanding and analysis with an assumption of the ability to be completely objective. And that scientific advancement would usher in, sorry, usher in the golden age of humanity. Rational, critical, logical thought was celebrated and pursued, and progress was, in it, was inevitable. Remember the five-second one? Modern progress is inevitable. We're always going up. As we understood more about the world, we could exert our will on the world and begin to control what humanity had previously thought was uncontrollable. New institutions and new nations rose to replace the old ones, the old nations ruled by kings. Consumerism became the order of the day, and the individual was celebrated and lauded over the community as a whole. So this is a radical worldview shift that happened really between kind of like the 14 to 1700s. Many believe that we are now in the same sort of shift that's going on in our world the same sorts of forces that transitioned our world from what's termed a pre-modern world to a modern world, many people believe has been happening for the last 150 years, and then we're living right in the middle of this transition. Um, so let's, let's think about, so I just told you what, what happened to transition from pre-modern to modern. Let's talk about why people think this modern to post-modern transition is happening. First, radio, television, and especially the internet have revolutionized communication and culture as a whole. Science has continued to advance significantly, and it has challenged the mechanistic view of the universe and where we can find truth, if it can be found at all. And postmodern philosophy especially challenges any claim to objective truth. I actually just saw something on Facebook yesterday that they were running some experience on the brain, and they were convinced that consciousness, or they were asserting they believe that consciousness only exists because of quantum entanglement which is one of those things I'll just nod my head and say, sure. Um, but what it would have blown people's minds 500 years ago. Um, air travel has brought us into a global society with economic 
and military implications. So globalism has begun to replace capitalism in our world. And then militarily, nuclear warfare, drones, biological and chemical weapons, cybercrime, and proxy wars are radically different than infantry with guns. And today, institutions are seen as suspicious at best and evil at worst, whether that's religious, academic, political. So what does this mean for us? It means a lot of things, but primarily, what we need to understand is that the world is changing radically. Um, and how we approach ministry and how we tell the story of Jesus needs to change to reach people who are primarily living with a radically different worldview. This is especially true as we look at truth claims, and this is what we're going to center on. So Dr. Stephanie Black at Fuller Seminary summarizes it this way. This is the the search for meaning. So the pre-modern search, truth is revealed, and the general thought was that the Bible was the source of all knowledge. Then we go through the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and it changes. Truth is objective. Truth is objectively verifiable. Man is the measure of all things. All truth is God's truth. You've probably heard some of these things. And then we move into a postmodern realm, which we're beginning to live in more and more now. Truth is subjective. Perceptions of truth are not reliable. What's true for you, or true for me, may not be true for you, and vice versa. So there's this incredible paradigm shift that's going on um, from modernism to postmodernism. So we have modernism on one side, truth is objective, it can be objectively perceived by the rational mind, that we can separate ourselves from anything that can influence us and we can objectively look at it. Whereas postmodernism says truth is subjective, one perception of truth is constructed, sorry, our perception of truth is constructed through individual and community experience. So that's a quick, the quick part that matters right now is this truth claim sort of area, right? And like most worldviews, there are some positives and there are some negatives to both of them. Some aspects are true and others may not be. Um, I'll tell you what I think and you can decide for yourself how you feel about it. I think that the modernist view of meaning has some truth because if I believe in God, um, then I believe that truth can be revealed by God in some way, that there is some sort of big T truth out there because God is, tr- is real. Um, but it all springs from the subject of God. Um, so I would, gen- I would tend to say that truth is objective and knowable to a degree. Um, and this is where I think the postmodern view is problematic. Um, but I believe the postmodern view is correct in saying that no one is perfectly objective. So the modern world said, we can be objective enough that we can see the, the truth of things. I think the postmodernity does a good job of saying, like, hey, we all have these lenses and these contexts we're coming from, and if we don't uh, get together, um, chances are, like, so your objectivity is going to lead you in the wrong direction uh, versus my objectivity. I'll give you a quick example of this. This is total off script, so this is what happens when I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. Um, say Genesis, Genesis 2, where um, it talks about God creating a helper for the man and woman, right? So when you read that, we have struggled with the idea in the last 150 years that helper, um, especially in a Western uh, affluent society, helper is always someone who is below you. Um, and so they're like, well, I mean, clearly this is, this is communicating in the Bible that women are, are meant to be subservient to men because that's what helpers do. They're subservient, and he's the one who, you know, as opposed to the, the idea that if someone needs help, like, there are other ways to look at it, right? Unfortunately for people, if you want to look at Hebrew, the, the term used for helper is primarily like 85% of the time in the Bible applied to God. Um, every time, God is our help and our strength right? He's our, sh- our help and our shield. We know 
God is not subservient. Um, so there's an issue here. Um, but what happens if you talk to someone from a different culture, you talk to someone from a culture, um, either, either their, their socioeconomic level is lower or perhaps they were enslaved at some point, what you discover is people who are wealthy think of help as something that they pay for. And that is always someone of lower economic means. When you are someone of lower economic means who doesn't have the power socially, the help for you is always coming from above. And so you have this lens where you know, like, I need help. My situation is so desperate. The only person who can help me is God. And the only person who can help me is someone who has power in our society. And when you think about the culture of Israel, they were almost always oppressed. Their help is always coming from above. But if we read it with Western affluent eyes, our natural inclination is to misread that and think of help as subservient, which is not what the Bible is saying. And that's why it's important to read in community, um, to engage with the Bible, because we are imperfect in our ability to perceive the truth, and thus we need to do it together. Sorry, that's my long aside about um, why women are not subservient, you know. But, yeah. So... Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, so let's keep going. When I think of postmodernity, I think of Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate right before his crucifixion. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Remember, they're being oppressed by, by uh, Rome and then, then the leaders at the time. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. So we follow Jesus. We think that there is a truth that Jesus can reveal. Um, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pontius Pilate responds, what is truth? I just love this. What is truth? Pontius Pilate would fit right at home in the postmodern world. What is truth? Here's the point. We need to be able to explain and communicate Jesus in a way that is understandable to people who do not share our faith or view of truth. We need to know how to share our lives and faith in intelligent, graceful, and compelling ways. The Apostle Peter said it this way, if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. And this should be our goal, to be ready to humbly talk about our faith and hope and the love of God that has changed our lives in a way that others can understand. So if we've gone through this huge cultural shift, how do we do this? And our whole series will unpack this um, in detail. We're gonna look at three specific journeys that people go on today and how to, how to engage them in those journeys in different ways, what sorts of questions you could ask versus questions that actually aren't helpful. Um, actually how to start with the person that you're loving instead of your agenda. Um, but I wanna look at just two speeches. I wanna look at two speeches in Acts where we see public proclamation of the gospel and compare them so that we can see, let's just go back 2,000 years, what were they doing then, and just look at how different they are. So we're gonna start with Peter actually um, in Acts 2. He does a speech in Jerusalem just a few months after Jesus is crucified. This is Acts 2.22. Then we'll look at, look at Paul somewhere else. Here's what Peter says. A public declaration of the gospel. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you all know. But God knew what would happen, and, he, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. So, I mean, this is a pretty in-your-face start 
to a proclamation of the gospel, right? If Peter asked me my opinion on the introduction to his message, I would have said, interesting approach, Peter. You're going with the classic, you killed Jesus message. Um, Not real sensitive. Um, Do you actually expect people to embrace Jesus at the end of this talk? Um, It seems pretty unlikely, man. I would go a different way. But I'm not giving Peter advice. This is the Bible. Maybe there's something more going on here. Let's keep reading. Perhaps Peter knows what he's doing. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to write in the grave, rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. So, Peter starts with the you kill Jesus approach but he follows it up with a message of hope. Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead, and even King David, our ancestor, predicted that this would happen. Now, this style wouldn't mean a whole lot to people today, but to the residents of Jerusalem who have been awaiting a Messiah, who are religious and have an understanding of the context of everything Peter is talking about, it might actually work. They know the Psalms that David wrote. They respect David. In many ways, they are looking for the second coming of King David. And Peter's leaning into that, continuing in verse 32. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. So Peter declares to the religious people of Jerusalem that the Messiah that they have been waiting for has come and says that these crazy events that you know about because you live here, All the stuff that's been happening, it's all related. It's God's plan coming together. Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead, and he's the Messiah. And while this is very direct and pretty in-your-face, addressing current events, right? Um, But he's, he's identifying. He knows his audience. He's addressing the questions and the hopes of the crowd that is ready for such a message. So what happened? Peter's words pierced their hearts. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So 3,000 people respond to Peter's message. How incredible is that? Um, But what's important to us is not, okay, this is what Peter did, and 3,000 people responded, I should do the exact same thing. It's important for us to understand that this message was uniquely designed to impact these people at this time in their particular religious culture. Peter addressed current events that include Jesus' popular and public entry into Jerusalem, his crucifixion a week later, and then he reports of his resurrection. Everyone knew about what Peter was talking about, and they had questions about it. So Peter addresses and answers those questions. Now, I don't think that this particular style of message would be very effective today in our world where people don't have a context or the knowledge to understand it, nor are they asking these same questions or making the same assumptions about the world. They're not longing for a Messiah. They didn't just see someone be crucified, right? It was incredibly effective at the time with a very specific audience. 
And the place that you are in, the place that we are in, and the people that we are addressing matter significantly when we share about Jesus. We should know the context that they're coming from and communicate in a way that can be understood and responded to, just like Peter did. The exact words that Peter used may not be ideal today, um, but Peter understood the assignment. We need to know who we are talking to when we share our faith. Maybe we are talking to someone with a strong religious background who understands the Jewish context well and has the same assumptions about the world and spirituality that they did, and they're just trying to sort through Jesus' death and resurrection. If that is all true, then maybe taking Peter's approach in Jerusalem is the way to go. But more and more today, this is not the case. People rarely, if ever, are in an appropriate place to hear the message presented in this way. Now, if you spend any time on campus, you will encounter people who are taking what, what I will, it's probably uncharitable to Peter, but we'll just call it the Jerusalem approach um, with people who are not ready for it. There are street preachers who set up like at the hill or in like the free speech area on the mall. They use inflammatory signs to try and get people's attention. And they hope to convict the irreligious, evil college campus of their sins. They don't even start with like spiritual reality or is God real? I mean, I like to start with like, do you, do you think that the world is the way it's supposed to be? Like, doesn't, isn't there something about the way the world is today that makes you a little uncomfortable? That's where I like to start. No, they won't start there. They want to jump straight to sin. And the message that they are sharing needs to be translated significantly and presented in a way that someone who does not view the world the way that they do might actually engage in it. Unfortunately, while many of these people have good intentions, they primarily succeed in making people angry and in confirming stereotypes about Christians that we then have to like try and deprogram them from. We're like, no, I love Jesus and I'm different. There's a different way to do this. Let me talk to you about the Jesus I know. Um, the people who listen to them and then reject the message of Jesus are not rejecting the message of Jesus. They're rejecting the message as it is presented and the messenger who's presenting in a way that's insensitive to the context. So instead, let me propose that we follow not the Peter method, again, which I said may be uncharitable to Peter. Peter did a good job. We just, we, we read some things in the Bible and we say, like, I'm gonna do the exact same thing. I'm just gonna hit people right in the teeth with their brokenness. If you're Jewish, you killed Jesus. Let's talk about it. I guess Peter did that, but that's a really bad plan and really insensitive. Um, there's another example later in Acts that I think will be more helpful to us, um, especially as we interact with people living in a postmodern world. This is the example of Apostle Paul, He's on one of, many, one of his many missionary journeys to share the good news of Jesus, and he's starting churches. Um, and then he arrives in Athens. He's waiting there for his friends Silas and Timothy, and he begins to explore the city of Athens and share his faith. This is verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Stoic philosophy is having like a, a day right now on social media. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's been around for a long time. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You were saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. 
And then we get a parenthetical in the Bible, which is always hilarious. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So you get kind of a missionary side note. If you don't understand how Athens is, this is normal, but weird, right? So I think that Paul's approach here is really informative and important for us today. In many ways, he does exactly what missionaries have been doing for hundreds of years when they travel to a foreign country. Perhaps they learned those lessons from Paul himself. Paul explored the city, and his heart is broken for the people there. He cares about them, and he learns about their lives. He then went to the places where it was appropriate and accepted to talk about religious ideas and philosophy. He didn't just start yelling at people in the middle of the intersection. He went to the places where that was normal. He went to the synagogue first to talk to the religious Jews and people who converted to Judaism, right? And there, he could probably use a little bit of the Peter method, right? You've been waiting for the Messiah. Guess what? He's come. But we don't, we don't get behind the scenes with that. Um, but with the people of Athens, he takes a different approach, right? They're not Jewish. They're not expecting a Messiah. Um, he went and debated with philosophers in the public forum. And in the Roman Empire, so here's my aside, the Roman Empire, debate and court proceedings were great entertainments, like the reality TV of the day, right? So while this may seem unusual and weird, Paul was entering into the culture that surrounded him and engaging it well. He wasn't doing a street preaching thing in an offensive way, like people might imagine it today. Like, he just went out there and talked to people. Ah, you don't understand what's actually happening in this passage. That's not what he's doing. Um, but rather he entered into the arena of ideas in a way that was appropriate to the culture of the city. It's kind of like going to a coffee shop near campus to talk about religion or politics. The result of this, when he did this, is that he was invited by the philosophers to the high council to share his ideas. This was not a place that Paul could have showed up on his own. This was a place that you had to be invited to. He couldn't just walk in To speak to the council, he had to be brought. If we engage in the right ways and in the right places with the right people, not only will we share the gospel well and find willing listeners, we might even be invited into their world to share it as well. And then we have the speech that he gives. So all that's the preamble. So he's invited to this high council. And this is what he says. He says, men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So if you remember, they they were like, what's this guy babbling about? Some foreign gods. Paul is contextualizing even more. Here's this one God that I'm going to tell you about. He is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heavens and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he was not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So this speech is significantly different than Peter's, right? 
He's in Greece addressing the philosophers and leaders of a cosmopolitan city that worships numerous gods. This is not Jerusalem anymore. He doesn't lead with, you killed Jesus. He doesn't talk about the Messiah. He, he gets in a little bit right at the end, right? Um, he proved to everyone who he was by raising from the dead, but that's where he ends. That's not where he starts. So Paul begins by referring to, by referring to a shared connection point, right? The religious nature of the people and their recognition that, they may, that there may be a God that they don't know about. And he affirms them, he compliments them, and he speaks in a style that they understand and respect. He even quotes from their philosophers. That's what's fun about the Bible is you get quotes from, from other works occasionally like this. Um, though his approach is different, it is ideal for his audience and has the same goal of Peter's message, um, the declaration of truth about Jesus, but it's done in a very different way. So what happens? What happens, right? 3,000 people responded to Peter. Let's see what happens with Paul. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, Paul's speech may not have had the huge impact that Peter's did, but I mean, Jesus only came from, rose from the dead once. So I feel like that 3,000 person thing was like, God had really primed the pump there. I think it's probably not gonna happen again. Um, we have a very different context that people do respond to. This is not a Jewish context where people had seen incredible events and were longing for a Messiah. This was a foreign city full of religious options, and Paul was very effective in his own way. So let me encourage you and submit that this is the model to follow. Now, I think they're both doing good things, but when we don't understand the context of what Peter's doing and then emulate it, we end up in bad places. So let's emulate Paul. It's, it's very clear. He identifies with people. His heart is breaking for them. He quotes their philosophers. He engages with them where they are and then begins walking them towards Jesus. America is much more similar to Athens than Jerusalem. Our country is incredibly diverse and pluralistic, and we need to learn how to communicate well in the culture that we live in. Just as missionaries learn the language and study the culture of the people they hope to share their lives and faith with, we need to do the same as America continues to change and diversify. It is not a cohesive whole full of people with the same background. There's a lot of diversity and difference, and it's worth it for us to become uh, exegetors of culture and the people around us and actually getting to know people before we open our mouths because we want to learn how to express the reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect, not with anger, not with, <laughs> you know, feel like we just have to say something so we can cross it off, I did my duty, but because we actually love people. Um, it's often a lot more like Athens than it is Jerusalem. And I think this is, as you read the, read the letters of Paul, this is Paul's whole philosophy. I, I love in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul states clearly how, how he goes about ministry. Again, this is like missionary 101, effectively, which is really just how to love people well and care about them and move towards them in a way that they might actually be respond to. So 1 Corinthians 9, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave, a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So here Paul declares that he will always hold tightly to who he is in Christ, 
into God's call on his life while being totally willing to change non-essentials to identify with the people that he ministers to. Paul says, basically, I will engage in the culture as much as it's possible while honoring God and maintaining a clear conscience because communicating the love and message of Jesus is vitally important. Paul understood clearly that without being willing to do this, his ministry would be hindered. And I believe that ours will be too if we don't follow his example. In talking to people, we should actually be their friends. We should actually care about them. We should get to know them, understand where they're coming from in their story and speak to them where they are. Most of this time, that means that we're not going to lead with logic, though it may be where we end up. Instead, we express our faith with context and story and grace and authenticity and respect. This is what we try to do as a community here and what we're trying to unpack in our series. How do we communicate winsomely and well with those who are different than us in a way that they can connect with? For me, this is rooted not only in, in Paul's missionary mindset, in his philosophy of ministry, but in my favorite verse, ah, that's probably my favorite verse. I put it in all my ministry updates. I just love this because I think it just so captures what we're trying to do. This is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, we love you so much that we share with you not only the gospel of God, not only God's good news, but our lives as well. And the, the version, that, which is not the one, my memorized version is not this one, it says, because you had become so dear to us. We loved you so much. You had become so dear to us. We share our lives with you. And in that context, we will also share Jesus. But, but it goes in a particular order, right? We loved you so much. It's so easy when we are trained in a modern way of doing ministry to see people as projects or sharing the gospel as working through a certain set of talking points. But when we actually read the Bible, we discover they are doing something very different. Paul shares his life with people. He's following the way of Jesus, which is summed up with love God and love others, right? The great commandment. Um, When we love people well, we align our hearts with God's heart. At the center of the heartbeat of God is the people that were created to share in the ever-expanding community of love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have shared for all eternity. We were invited into that community, and when we invite others, we should understand that we aren't attempting to get them to assent to certain claims or to agree to an arrangement, but rather to join a community, to enter into a deep, life-giving, loving relationship with Jesus, just like we have. So we share our lives and our faith together. And we do, when we do this, we not only honor the great commandment, love God and love others, but the great commission as well. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commandments I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission of the followers of Jesus is clear, to invite everyone into this transforming relationship with Jesus that includes following the way of Jesus in the community of Jesus. And in that community, Jesus is present now and forever. But even with this mission in mind, We as followers of Jesus need to remember that our call is always to Jesus first. We fall in love with Jesus again and again. We learn to live in his way. We rest in the love that he lavishes on us. And from that core of belovedness and that centering relationship, we invite others into the love of God and life with Jesus as our Savior, leader, and Lord. So as we do this, let's commit to a few things. First, let's be sensitive to our audience and consider when we speak if we are in Jerusalem or Athens. 
most of the time you're in Athens. Let's love people enough to know them and meet them where they are, helping them take the next step on their journey towards Jesus, remembering that most people today do not share our core assumptions about life or worldview that we do. Secondly, I'd encourage you, I shared some of my favorite verses uh, that relate to sharing Jesus. Perhaps one of the things that would be good for you to do in light of this is to choose one of those to memorize. Maybe it's 1 Peter, which we'll actually do for reflection. Um, If someone asks to give the reason for the hope that you have, always be ready, right? Or maybe it's 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I become all things to all people, so that by all means I may save some. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, we loved you so much that we share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you've become so dear to us, or the Great Commission, right? Having these verses in your mind and heart can turn your eyes towards loving others and sharing faith with them well. And if we're not careful, right, you memorize just one and you miss, like we're doing it with gentleness and respect. Or the reason I love 1 Thessalonians 2.8, I'd say like memorize it, like we loved them so much that we shared our lives with them and the gospel, man. Thirdly, I encourage you to pray for people in your life that need to have a transforming encounter with Jesus. Pray that they will respond to the Spirit as God draws them to himself and that you'll be able to join the work of Jesus in their lives. And if you don't have anyone to pray for, pray that God would bring people people in your life that you can love well. Not as a project, not as an end goal of sharing the gospel, but you love well because that's what God did. He moved towards us in love of Jesus and true love shares who we are and who we believe. But we need to do it in the right order. Finally, I encourage you to come back the next three weeks, which will be very different than this week, but we're going to look at three different journeys um, and how to meet people right where they are. So three different journeys that everyone goes on and how to communicate powerfully to those journeys and to start there instead of other ways. Because wouldn't it be incredible if we grew in our ability to talk about Jesus with gentleness and respect with people who are longing to meet him even though they don't even know it yet? Wouldn't it be awesome if we saw the kingdom of God begin to grow as we share our lives and faith in gentle, respectful, and winsome ways, we can talk about Jesus with winsomeness and attractiveness. What if our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors could center their lives on the firm foundation of Jesus and not only discover the love of their souls, but begin to realize that living life Jesus' way actually is better and some of the challenges and problems I've been experiencing, if I actually learned to forgive, if I started resolving conflict, um, if I started learning to love someone other than just myself, that life is better that way. Wouldn't it be awesome to see all the ways people could be transformed today and forever? We've seen it happen in our lives, in our community. So let's pray that we can join God in his work of redemption and reconciliation in the world. In fact, let's start right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, again affirm that you are the center of the story. Even though our lives and our minds center around ourselves, um, we don't have to be the hero. We don't have to be the center. We receive your help because you are the center. Um, And you've adopted us. You've elevated us. You've loved us into loving. Help us be people who choose love first and relationship first like you did and then continue to share our lives and our faith and offer people the truth that you've revealed that has so changed our world and our lives. Thank you for your love. May we be people and messengers and ambassadors of your love, Jesus, and of your kingdom and of your gospel that changes everything. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name I pray. Amen.
you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.